0: Good morning, church. We are back in our series today called Soapbox Sermons, where I've invited a few friends to come fill the pulpit, get up on their soapbox, and and specifically preach to you the message that God's laid on their heart for you during these next few weeks. This morning, we have GVF's own Michael Rome. Michael has been on staff here at GVF for coming up on two years. He is the youth and family pastor here at GVF. Prior to that, he was trained in the National Guard as a combat weather specialist. Uh, he's passionate about espresso and wolverine and youth ministry. It's about time we got him in the pulpit, and I'm so excited for the word he's going to preach to you this morning. So please give a warm GVF welcome to Michael Rum. So have you ever, I don't know, sat in one spot for just way too long And you kind of get that tickly, spiky feeling running up and down your leg. You know, it gets a little numb. I'm not sure where you're sitting at for that length of time. But your leg starts getting a little weird. And when you you stand up, you're not quite sure if you're going to have your balance or not, if your leg's going to work right. Or maybe it's your arm or your hand. You're reading your favorite book and you're resting on your hand for way too long. And it feels like it was abducted or just is not your hand anymore. I don't know. Maybe you're like staring longingly at the person you love like this for way too long. And your hand starts falling asleep. And that's what we say, right? When, when that happens, that feeling, we kind of say, oh, my, my hand's asleep, my leg's asleep. I'll just shake it out and everything will be okay. And we go on with our day. Well, six years ago, on June 15th, I woke up with that kind of feeling, running up and down the left side of my body, from my head all the way down to my freakishly large toes. It was this really odd feeling, this, this like tickly kind of spike feeling. And I was the first one up, and my wife, Anna, was asleep next to me. It was my morning to get up and make breakfast. So I was up before her, and I laid there trying to figure out what was going on. I, just, I guess I just assumed that I must have slept really hard, right? I must have slept wrong, because I could be a hard sleeper. So when I sleep, the world could be burning around, down around me. Or worse yet, my baby could be crying next to me, and I won't wake up. That is how hard I can sleep. So I just assumed that was what was going on. So I tried to shake out my leg. I rubbed my arm a little bit. And I got up and decided to go about my day. So I'm walking around the house. And things just weren't working right. My leg was twitching. And I was kind of losing balance. So I walked over to the closet by the kitchen where we keep our medication. Because I figured, you know, just two Advils will work, right? It will fix it. And there's this moment as I'm standing there by the closet where my body decides to tell my brain, guess what? You're going down. Prepare yourself. And it was in that brief moment that I was able to just kind of like lean a little to the left and I fell over into a pile of clothes that my kids had left there from before. Now, if you've ever gotten on your kids for making a mess and leaving stuff around the house, I'm giving you a public service announcement right now that one day it might break your fall. All right? So stop yelling at your kids for that. It's gonna be okay. So I was laying there on this pile of laundry and I called my wife Anna. I kind of figured, something is not right. So my wife came, I explained what was going on, and after a little while, we decided to go to the hospital. Now, I wasn't a, I'm not really a genius, so I didn't really think about calling for the ambulance. I decided to have my wife take me to the hospital. And we were actually in Reading, and I didn't want to go to the Reading Hospital. I didn't like it. I wanted to go to Hershey, where I'm originally from. And so it took an hour drive, and as we're driving, I called my mom up and said, hey, mom, can you meet us there? She was actually an aide at the Hershey Medical Center at the time, and So we got there, we pulled up. There was my mom waiting there with a uh, wheelchair. And as my my wife and my mom transferred me from the car to the wheelchair, everything went into overdrive. I felt the worst pain I have ever felt in my life. And what happened next, I can only describe it as though I was trying to navigate through a room full of strobe lights, going in and out. So one moment, there I am yelling at a nurse, and I don't even know why, and then Nothing. And then I wake up and there's more members of my family in the room. And then there's nothing. And then I wake up and there's this plastic sheet on my face. And what I can only assume is my own blood on top of it. And then nothing. And then I woke up. And then what I said when I saw the doctor above me. And I've been quoted. that I actually said this. You you look like Doogie Howser. (laughs) I'm not joking. The guy looked like Neil Patrick Harris. And I felt relieved that the renowned teen doctor was looking over me. <laughs> and if you, if you don't get why that's funny, then you need to find somebody that grew up in the early 90s and ask them why that was comforting to know that Doogie Howes was looking after me. And then nothing. And this went on for, for about two days. And then something. I woke up, and I looked like this. So if you see in the left-hand picture, it's kind of a little bit hard, but there's actually a tube coming out of my skull. And on the right-hand picture, there's a tube coming out of my neck. I didn't know that at the time. I just woke up. And I couldn't see. I couldn't speak. And I couldn't move. But I could hear. And what I heard still kind of racks its way around my brain today. And I heard the doctor. And I could tell he was off to the left. Because I heard his voice. I could tell he was off to the left. So I heard the doctor talking to my my mom, my dad, and my wife—who were off to the right—because I heard the voices coming at me. And I heard the doctor explain that there was a, an abscess in my head, a pocket of, of infection, had burrowed in, and they didn't know what to do. They don't know how it started. They knew how to get rid of it, and they said—and I heard this—that there was a ten percent chance that I was—I was, uh, was going to live, ninety percent chance I was going to die. And They told my family that. And they said what they wanted to do is they wanted to go into my brain and try to get that infection out. But they weren't certain if they, if they did that, there's a good chance that I might end up an invalid. Not able to move or talk in a vegetative state. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh, please let my dad be the one to make the, the right choice. Because uh, he's more of a, uh, an intellectual person. He'll make the right uh, intellectual choice. Where my, my wife would be an emotional. Nothing against her. But I knew my dad would make that kind of intellectual choice right then. And after I heard all of that, I prayed the shortest, most desperate prayer to God that I've ever prayed. And again, I can't see, I can't speak, I can't move, but I prayed out to God, Father God, please, when my girl, my little girl, my little boy grew up, please don't let them hate you for taking me away at such a young young age in their life. So I prayed that because I still wanted my kids to grow up knowing that God is a good God. But after I said that prayer, my mind was filled with this realization that I would never get to play ball with my, young, my little boy. I never get to pass ball with him in the backyard. And I don't even like baseball. He was one years old at the time, and I believe that it's kind of like the right of every dad to be able to pass ball with their boy in the backyard, right? Every dad should have that opportunity. And I wasn't going to get that. And that's how fear works, isn't it? We go from praying to God, trusting in him, to all of a sudden not being aware of our future and being afraid of what's going to happen next. And I felt that way. And I'm sure many of you have been in a place in your life where you felt that way as well. Where one minute you're praying to God, but the next minute you're so afraid, you kind of forget about Him, and you're so focused on that fear that it paralyzes us. Do you know what I'm talking about? When something has caused you to have kind of sleepless nights filled with anxiety that's overwhelming, what do you do? How do you get out of that? How do you overcome that? Well, I believe the answer to that will be found in, in Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. That's where we're hanging out this morning. And if you have a Bible app, cool, you can pull that up, scroll there. But we're hanging out in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And the verses following. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat And there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. They said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So what's what's really cool about this, what's going on as we come to this passage, is that Jesus actually spent all day preaching by the Sea of Galilee. And if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee over in Israel... What's really cool about it is that it is, there's this like land feature where the, the Sea of Galilee is, I think, three to 500 feet below sea level. And the land above it kind of moves upwards, and it creates a natural amphitheater. So what was going on is that Jesus would get into a boat, go a little ways out into the water, and he would preach a sermon. And it would just naturally lift, and he carried his voice up, to the, up the natural slope so everybody could hear him, Right? Could you imagine going to church in the morning and all of a sudden, like, having your pastor preaching there and there's this beautiful scenery behind him with a sea and the waves crashing behind him? And so what Jesus preached, among many other stories, he told one story that talked about having a faith firmly rooted in the word of God. And So he got done preaching, and then it says that he got into a boat just as he was. He had to get to, another, to the other side of the sea. Now, it doesn't say that he, he didn't stop, he didn't, take, he didn't take a nap, he didn't take a shower, he didn't grab a cup of coffee or Red Bull or, or whatever the equivalent is back then to kind of get energized. It just says that he went as he was because he had to get to the other side. He had a purpose to get there. So he got into the boat. Now, let me be real with all of you guys for a second. When I'm done here and I'm done shaking the last hand as you guys leave the church, I'm going home and I'm going to grab a piece of pillow and I'm going to be out until it's time to eat. Because being up here can really wear you out. But Jesus didn't do that. He jumped right in a boat. And he went as he was. Now what happens next really excites me. I love this part in the passage. It gets me really pumped up because you see, Paul said in the video that that I was a weather forecaster in the Air Force National Guard for eight years. And this is the first time in a Bible study where I can actually talk about what's going on meteorologically. This is really cool. So just bear with me as I geek out. I put a cool picture up there for you guys to look at. I'll tell you about that in a second. But just bear with me as I geek out here for a moment and talk about what's going on here with the weather. So, you see, there was the land around uh, the Sea of Galilee. uh, Off to the, excuse me, southwest, there was Mount Tabor uh, that was rising to about 2,000 feet in elevation. And what would happen is that wind would come up on the windward side of the mountain which is downwind, the opposite side of where the Sea of Galilee is at. And it would push against the mountain for a while. And so it could be really nice on the sea, but on the other side of the mountain there's this this storm building and you wouldn't even know it. And eventually it would push against the mountain and go up over and down through the cracks and crevices. And so on a good day, when there's just high winds, you would get something like this, this cloud, which is called alto cumulus standing lenticular. I remember that. All right, so you can take that home with you guys. Altocumulus standing lenticular. And the reason why it's called that is cuz it's got that kind of lens shape to it, right? And so what happened on a nice day, winds would be moving up over the cloud and underneath and create that lens shape in there. But on a bad day, when a weather front was coming, it would push up against that mountain and build up. And all of a sudden, it would come up over and down through and create a whirlwind. And anybody that's on that sea, a small little fishing boat would be just torn apart. Now, I'm done with that part about, about, uh, about the cloud. And, and I'm not just saying all this stuff to kind of brag to you guys about what I remembered from, from weather training. I'm actually, I have a point to it. And the point is that it doesn't matter how experienced those fishermen were on, on the sea, they could have left that day thinking everything would be great. And out of nowhere, something brutal would come and just smack them apart. And that's what fear is like, right? Where one minute everything's going along fine, And you turn a corner, and it's as if something was brutal, brutally just waiting there to to smack you in the face. And so you might have your finances taken care of. You finally got to a place in your life where you're able to save up, pay your bills on time. And you actually have a little money saved away for having a nice vacation this summer. And then you turn the corner, and all of a sudden your car breaks down, your water heater goes. All of a sudden your bills are piling up, and you're not quite sure how to pay uh, this month's bills. Or it could be your job, right? You have a great, steady job that's been reliable for a long time, and all of a sudden now they're downsizing, and you're not sure if you're gonna be the next one to get let go. Or you could be in perfect physical health, you're getting ready to sign up for the next marathon or something like that. You're signing up for your your marathon, and you go to visit the doctor, and all of a sudden they find something that shouldn't be there. You turn the corner, you get smacked in the face. Or maybe there's an addiction or a habit that you finally have under control, but lately it's just been too hard to resist. Maybe you're not sure how this stormy season of your life has started. You're not sure how it began. And you're not sure if it will ever end. Well, I've got teens here this morning and I don't want to forget them. You might be here this morning and you're a teen, you're a young person. And I get you. I get what you're going through. I understand the fears that you guys have. Fear of not knowing if you're ever going to fit in. Not knowing if you're ever going to measure up. If the decisions you make right now will affect your future. How they'll affect your future. What your future will look like. Not sure if you're going to measure up to your parents or your teachers or your friends. I get the fear you guys are going through. And what's really kind of interesting about my life in ministry is I've gotten to walk along all different types of people. And so I've walked alongside soldiers who are getting to go on a deployment and leave their family. I've walked alongside newlyweds who got married and were all of a sudden not sure if they made the right choice. I've walked alongside teenagers who are just really struggling with decisions in their life and they think the best option for them is to take their life away. And I've walked along elementary, elementary kids and, and I've, I've been with kids who have struggled as their families are being torn apart about how they're supposed to handle that. Or I've walked alongside a young person who told me, I asked him, what is your greatest fear? And he said, not knowing what's going on in the dark, in the night. And the reason I say that is because I want to make sure that we, we don't try to put fear on a scale. Because we can do that sometimes. We can feel like my fear is so great that nobody else gets it. Nobody else has experienced my fear And so how would they know what I'm going through? And I want to tell you that it doesn't matter if you're a young person or an older person. The fear that you have is the greatest fear that you know at that time. And so there is no scale. So I want to get caught up on that. So just like our little ones are here this morning right now who are struggling with their fear, it's as great to them as it is to you as a parent. And with every fear, there is a chance that it will paralyze us, keep us from moving. I mean, look at the disciples, right, in the boat. They were so busy running around looking for help, they weren't actually sailing. They were so paralyzed by their fear. It can paralyze us. And and having fear, I like to think, is having faith, but in the wrong direction. So fear is having faith in the wrong direction. You're afraid of the circumstance that you're in or the object of your fear, and that you think it's greater than what God can do. We somehow convince ourselves, we, we start to believe that whatever we're afraid of, we'll somehow, I don't know, outthink, outmaneuver God and what God's plan is for our life. And we become very afraid and we have faith in that object rather than God. So to have the opposite of that, to have the opposite of fear, I believe, is to have a very simple faith. Faith much like the young people that are in here this morning that joined us today. And so I want to Talk to a little, the, the young people here this morning. And I, I know I'm the adult, and it's so when I'm up here teaching. I'm an adult. You guys are adults. I talk. You listen. We don't say anything back and forth. But over in kid ministry, when I normally teach, where we have all the fun on Sunday mornings, what normally happens is I ask questions, and I get back some really good answers. And so I want to take a moment to talk to my little people here this morning. So if you're a kid, if you're my first through fifth graders, I want you to look up here. Get your eyeballs up here. I got a question to ask you. And feel free to shout out the answer. You're not going to scare the grown-ups too much. So I want you to shout out what you, the answer to my question, right? You guys ready? What are some of the things you do before you cross the street? Uh, look both ways. Oh, great. Look left and right, correct? Hold your dad's hand. I heard that one. That's my boy. Anybody else? <laughs> and I heard something over here. I see you talking to your mom and dad. It's okay. You might be a little scared to yell it out. I get it. There's a lot of grown-ups in here. We'll talk about it next Sunday. It's fine. So I heard a good answer from my son. I kind of prepped him before this morning to give the right answer. (laughs) He cheated. Right? So when I walk with my boy, and we come to the end of the sidewalk, what does he do? He goes like this right away. He just shoots that arm up there and reaches up for my hand, and I grab and take hold of it. I don't even think about it anymore. He just shoots it up, holds my hand. We cross the road And as we're in the middle of the road, he doesn't look left or right anymore because he knows that I'm going to get him safely to the other side. He trusts that I'm going to get him there. And that simple kind of faith is what we're supposed to be living out of. So how bad would it be if I left my son on the side of the road, on the side of the sidewalk, and I just took off running and said, Hey, see you on the other side. Hope you get there. I'd be a bad father. You'd probably have to call somebody on me, right? I wouldn't do that my son knows that so in faith he just throws his hand up he takes a hold and we cross together and that's what our faith in God is supposed to be like when we come to God we pray and we ask and he does we pray and we ask we throw up our hand and he takes a hold of it so we pray ask he does now I can't do anything without him and he has chosen not to do anything without me so he has chosen not to cross without taking a hold of my hand And we can come to God confidently knowing that. And that's the kind of faith we can live in. But let's see what it's like for the disciples right now in the boat. Let's look back at what they're doing right now in the boat and see if they're living out that kind of childlike faith in the midst of their real storm. As we look back at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You can almost feel the panic that's drenched in that statement, right? As they call out, don't you care? That sounds familiar, right, to us? It might go something like this. God, I've been praying to you for so long. Are you there? Or God, I, I don't get it. I've been asking him over and over again. It just doesn't feel like God is listening. That kind of panic we feel with what the disciples are going through. And we become paralyzed. And then there's Jesus. And he's asleep in the stern of the boat. Now, is anybody here familiar with sailing or with boats? Go ahead and raise your hand up for me. I know, again, I know we don't raise our hands a lot in church, unless we're praising. But I need to see your hands up high. Keep them up. If you know how, if you can, let me look out here. It's kind of bright. Okay. Keep your hand up if you know what the stern of the boat is. Awesome. Some of the hands went down. Okay. You can put your hands down. Now, there weren't many hands up. I kind of assumed that. Uh, I didn't think there was a lot of people here that know their way around a boat or sailing. So I kind of figured out, so I, I, I thought about it, and I realized that many more of you people probably know this guy, right? I'm a youth pastor. Of course I'm going to throw up Pirates of the Caribbean. So this guy, Jack Sparrow, when we watch his movie, there's so many of them, it's hard not to miss. They're on, like, number 15 now, right? They all kind of blend together after a while. But in any movie like this, whether you've seen this movie or any other pirate movie, there's always this awesome scene, right, where, where the captain is standing behind that massive wooden wheel and he's moving it left and right and just standing there confidently with a flick of his wrist, he's able to kind of control the whole vessel of the boat. Where that captain is standing in the back of the boat that controls the whole boat is the stern of the boat. And that is where we find Jesus sleeping, laid up on a cushion. I think that's really neat, isn't it? That where the captain should be standing, navigating the boat, we have our Savior laying there asleep. This is a beautiful moment. Jesus is asleep in the thick of a violent storm. We see two things happening here. One, we see a Savior who is exhausted and tired. And we also see him not afraid to be in the midst of that storm because he is in control. Because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so he is tired and he is in control. Now what does this mean to be fully God and fully man? I want to stop here for a minute and kind of explain this. Because this is very important to us living out our fear. This theological truth, known as the hypostatic union, union, teaches that Jesus has two natures. He's human and divine. And they are inseparable. You can't get them away from each other. Jesus will forever be the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Two distinct natures in one person. Jesus' humanity and his divinity are not mixed like some sort of concoction. But they are united without loss or separate identity. Now, Jesus sometimes operated in the limitations of his humanity. And other times in the power of his deity. In both, Jesus' actions were from his one person. So Jesus didn't put on his, his humanity like it was a coat or a jacket. And for one minute, he decided, I'm going to be like a human today. I'm going to put this on real quick. And then all of a sudden, oh, now I'm, I'm not going to. I'm going to take it off and put my God robe on. It wasn't like that. He was both at the same time, fully God, fully man. And even though this is a theological truth that we've come to know, of, it is still a beautiful mystery today. And the reason why it's beautiful and why it matters when we're trying to navigate our fear and faith is that we have a Savior who knows what it's like to be tired and worn out and to go through a storm. And this is especially important if you're a teenager right now. Again, my heart is for teenagers. Uh, this still applies to all everybody in here. But if you're a teenager, I want you to catch this in this passage and see Jesus in this moment right now. So if you're a teenager and you've ever felt like nobody gets you, you feel like nobody understands what you're going through, you feel like your mom or your dad or your friends don't understand you or even your youth pastor doesn't get you i want you to look at this moment of jesus being tired and know that he came on this earth he set his foot down on this earth to walk through what you have gone through and you have a savior that fully understands what it's like to live through a storm and at the same time he is fully in control of what is happening psalm 121 tells us that our savior neither sleeps nor slumbers He's always in control, he's always watching out for us, and he's always protecting us. In the midst of that storm, the disciples wake him up, he stands up, and what does he say? Knock it off! Right? That's actually a really close translation to the original language. Um, It it really is close to saying, knock it off. He yells at the storm. He tells it to cease. What's actually kind of neat, he actually yells at it and casts it out. The storm out, almost like he would a, a demon in that text. So he yells at it, tells it to knock it off. And I, I kind of wonder why he didn't stand up and tell his disciples a parable or a story or teach them about having faith. That's a great opportunity, right? Storm's going on right around there right now. He didn't stand up and say, hey, guys, let me real quick, let me tell you what's going on. He didn't do that. He yelled at the storm. And I, I kind of wonder, this is just a passing thought. I wonder, is it possible that the storm is quicker to obey God than we are? Quicker to listen to him than we do often. And not only did it obey him and listen to him, check out what happens next. This is really cool. It says there was a great calm. There wasn't a ripple, there wasn't a wave, it was just calm on the water. So not only was it the cause of fear taken away, but its effects went as well in that moment. You know, if you've ever thrown a rock out in the water and you see the ripples kind of go, that wasn't happening. Completely calm. If you ever seen the water after a thunderstorm, man, it, the, sun, the thunderstorm could be gone. and It seems like the water is never going to settle down. But it did in this moment as Jesus demonstrated his divinity and had control over, over nature. So I wonder how can I get that kind of calm in my life, that calm and peace over anxiety, over a sleepless nights, Maybe over the stress where I feel like I, I have to regain my control. How do we get that kind of calmness in our life? And I believe that that kind of calmness comes from a position of rest. When we learn to rest as Jesus did. No longer fearing the storm that's outside the boat, but having faith in the Savior that's inside the boat with us. So the best thing you can do in your life when you're confronted with fear and it's overwhelming you, and you don't know what to do, and you kind of feel your heart racing, and your legs are shaking, the best thing you can do is grab a nice blanket, or a snuggie, or whatever it is that find, you find comfort in, and take up a piece of cushion next to Jesus as he is laying there, resting next to him. Now, real quick, I got to say this. I, f- I feel like I must say this. If you're later on, you go off, I'm not, I'm, and you're, you're talking at a meeting with your boss, what I am not saying is that if he's yelling at you and you're getting nervous, Don't go in the corner somewhere, get in a veto position, and take a power nap. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying if you're one of those people who stresses out a lot when you drive, like I do, when you're stuck in traffic, don't just, like, throw it in park and jump in the back seat for a nap. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when we learn to trust in God, we can have peace. We learn to rest in Him. So author Nancy Guthrie actually wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition to rehearse these six words when you're faced with fear. And I think these are good six words for us to take home with us today. And the six words are I will trust God with this. And it's hard, right, to say that, to say it and actually mean it. I can trust God with this has all kinds of implications when it comes to dealing with our fear and with the sea of emotions that kind of well up when these things happen. When I say I can trust a God with this, I can I'm saying I can trust God with my unknown future. I can trust God that he will heal the hurt. I can trust God that he will fill the emptiness. I can trust God that he hears me when I pray. And I can trust God to speak through his word to me. So think about it. When Moses first encountered God and he asked God, who should I say you are? How does God respond? He says, I am. And so we have a God that is the I am. Not the could be, or should be, or would be, or maybe. But the God that is the I am. So when you don't know what to do when the the sea or fear is happening in your life, you can say, I will trust in God with this because he is the God that is the I am. And he will get you through to the other side, whatever that other side is for you. Check out chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea. The doctors gave me a 10% chance to live. And then the next day it went from 10% to 50-50. But they weren't sure if I was ever going to learn how to walk again. They weren't sure if the rest of my body would ever function. I'd have a nurse help me and clean me. But at least it wasn't 10, right? It was 50-50. And I was in the hospital for, for about two months. And finally they discharged me. And I went home, and I didn't know what my future was going to be like. I didn't know they were going to put me in rehab to learn how to try to walk again. I wasn't sure what was going to happen next. But they discharged me. And I went home. And as we got home, my, my wife helped me move from the car to the wheelchair, and then from the wheelchair to the recliner in our house. And as I sat there, my wife took our son, and she placed him at my feet, and she went about cleaning the house and getting things ready and all the stuff that she does. And in that moment, my son, of his own free will, crawled over, grabbed a ball, and threw it at me. And then I was a bawling mess, right? Like, I'm trying to hold it back right now. I just started crying. There's my little guy throwing a ball. He's one years old. And all of a sudden, like, I'm bawling, right? I probably scared him. But in that moment, God took away my fear. And he brought me to the other side. I don't know what your other side looks like. I'm not sure what it is for you, what that other side is. And I have to be honest, that day could have turned out completely different, right? My wife, my kids could have went home without me. But there is still hope. There is still hope that there is another side because Jesus Christ, the Savior that was in that boat, is the same Savior that hung on the cross and took away the greatest fear that we could ever have. And that's being our lives being demolished by sin. Jesus Christ took that away when he hung on the cross for us. The work of Jesus on the cross has guaranteed that when we trust in him, when we fully place all of our trust in him, that the other side will always be salvation over sin and death. And that is something that I can find rest in. And that is something that I can say, I will trust God with this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this place we can come to kind of rest and reflect on you we can be here in church and kind of get out of the storms of our life for a moment and and i'm not i'm aware that people are sitting here right now thinking about the things that are are barreling down on them that they're afraid of and that they're worried about and i just ask that you would comfort them right now knowing that they can trust in you that you will bring them to the other side i don't know what that side looks like but you do and you know how to get them there so i ask for all of us that we learn each day to step out Reach out our hand and reach up for yours and cross to the other side knowing that you will take us there. And we will have that childlike faith and confidence in you. In your name I pray. Amen.